So good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Albert. I'm the uh, lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network. One of the things I do once a month is I, I actually get the privilege of preaching in different places on the same day. So I was preaching here at the 9, and then I rushed over to Marple in Vancouver, and I got off the stage at 10.12. No, 11.12. So I got off the stage 24 minutes ago. And I usually... No, you don't need to clap. And so I usually get here with ample time, but things were delayed there and stuff like this. And so there is a reason why I don't have a fish on my uh, back of my car. <laughs> There's a reason why it does, I don't have a bumper sticker, right, that says, hey, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. There's a reason for that. So if uh, I'm sorry for anyone I cut up. You're not here because you were here before me, but I did not drive well. <laughs> or I drove well, but not well. All right, so anyways, today we're uh, continuing our sermon series on the book of Isaiah. And so to begin, I'd like to ask a question. Does anyone know what a nurse log is? Anyone here? I know, look at the confusion on some people. A nurse log. No one hears, knows what... An, okay, yes, thank you, Steve. I knew you would at least. So I brought some pictures for those that do not. So here's a dead log, like lying down on its side, and on top of that is a tree that's grown out of it, and you can see the complex root system. Next slide, there is a stump here, and there's some foliage and green coming out of it. And the next slide, and this is my favorite, here is like a stump that's been like, like chainsawed, and yet there is a tree that's wrapped around it and growing up from it. And so nurse logs then are simply these big, huge chunks of dead and decaying tree trunks, except they're only dead on the outer level, in a sense that the initial tree which died and fell in the ground is now giving life to a whole new generation of the forest. That the decaying surface of the dead tree creates a little perfect growing place for a seed or a seedling. In effect, then, the decaying tree serves as a nursemaid, a nurse tree or a nurse log, um, providing shade, nutrients, water, and protection for the upcoming generation. Isn't that cool? Life that comes from death. That's an example of this. Let me say that again. Life that comes from death. You see, this is the hope for Judah, that Isaiah in chapter 6 and 11 has compared Judah to a forest of dead tree stumps, the nation will look like a forest that has been clear-cut by greedy loggers, ugly, defaced, bare, and all the trees cut down and hauled away like a forest of tree stumps. You are what you worship. And the Israelites became what they worshipped, that they had turned away from God and towards the worship of idols. And what were these idols? These idols were just carved pieces of wood, like dead stumps, that they made themselves with their own hands. The idols could not see or hear. The idols were deaf and blind. And the people became as blind and deaf as the idols they worship. Remember, you are what you worship. That Isaiah is going to preach with incredible power and eloquence, but the people will not take off their blindfolds. They will not remove their earplugs. They will ignore his sermons. They will fall asleep in the middle of them, and they will simply dismiss, dismiss the word of God. That over and over again, Isaiah warned them, turn away from your idols, repent. But they did not listen. And so God had no choice but to send them into exile. Fast forward to 586, and that's exactly what happens. The Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar will sweep down from the north, will lay siege on Judah and burn Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. That God in his good providence will actually use the nation of Babylon in order to judge and hold his own people accountable for their actions. 
that they had refused to repent and change. And so God had no other choice. But God does not leave Judah without hope. There's always, when it comes to God, a glimmer of hope. That even when a tree has been cut down, as we saw, there still remains life within it. That there's always an opportunity for growth and new birth. Life that comes from death. And that's what Isaiah is 11 about. So last week, we had this excellent sermon from Sean, if you remember, and because we took a break, we're going to do a quick review on chapter 11, and it begins like this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So who is this shoot or the branch of Jesse who will bring restoration to the nation? Note that the word branch is capitalized, right? So obviously referring to a person. Isaiah is here using a metaphor. And in order to be a shoot, you actually have to be descended or you have to come from something or someone. So Tapestry Marple, for instance, is an offshoot of Richmond. I am a shoot of Wei Ming Chu because that's my dad. And so the Savior has to be a shoot descended from Jesse. Well, Jesse was the father of King David, and all the kings of Judah were from the same family tree. And so this shoot, this messianic king, this savior that will come and save them has to be a descendant of Jesse and David. Okay, that narrows things down. But this is how it ends in chapter 11, verse 10. It says, in the day the root, again capitalized, again referring to a specific person, that in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, what's going on here? Earlier, right, we just said that this king that's coming has to be the shoot of Jesse. But notice here in verse 10, now he is called the root of Jesse. But how can that be? How can he be both? I mean, a root is something you grow out of, right? Jesse came up out of this root. David ascended from this root. So how can someone be both shoot and root? How can someone be a descendant of Jesse, but also the source of Jesse? Well, there's only one answer. The creator God, who is the root and source of all of us, was born into the world and became a shoot and descendant of Jesse. That Jesus is this God-man, both root and shoot, who came as a new king, a descendant of David, and it is Jesse. Sorry, it is Jesus, not Jesse. (laughs) who will be this messianic king who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus, full of of the Spirit, who will bring justice, shalom, and the promise of salvation, that although they may right now resemble cut-down tree stumps, there is always this hope of emerging shoot, new life and new beginnings, life that comes from death. And that's how chapter 11 ends, that amidst judgment on Judah, there is this glimmer of hope, And God does not stop there because God is not only the God of Judah, God is a God of the nations, like all the nations. And so from chapters 13 to chapter 24, they deal with now um, what happens with all the other nations that surround Judah. Nations like Assyria, Moab, Cush, Judah, I mean Egypt to name a few. And which nation does he begin with? He begins with the very nation that God actually uses in order to judge Judah. He begins with an oracle or a judgment against Babylon. And that's where we're going to pick things up today. So chapter 13, verse uh, 1, we'll begin like this. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. 
Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His wrath to destroy the whole country. That's pretty intense, heavy stuff. And in this passage, God is calling an army, an army that will enact God's judgment, an army that will destroy the nation of Babylon. Now, Babylon, what do we know about Babylon? Well, the first mention of Babylon actually occurs first in Genesis 11, like way back there, when Babylon wasn't referred to Babylon, but was referred to as... Okay, let me uh, give you a hint. Just think of the word Babylon and think of the first five letters of the word. When Babylon wasn't known as Babylon, but was known as Babel. Good. So good. (laughs) So happy. Didn't have to give you a hint or anything. It was so good. But do you guys remember this story? So Genesis 11 begins like this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So next slide here. This is a picture of this called the Ziggurat of Ur. And uh, it's just the facade which has been reconstructed, but archaeologists believe that the original building that was there is, dates back to like 4,000 plus years. So could this be the original Tower of Babel? And you can't really know that for sure, but archaeologists tell us that there are a number of these uh, ziggurats that they tried to build, and they look less like a tower, right, and more like a man-made mountain. So why did the Babylonians build these ziggurats? What was the purpose of the Tower of Babel? Was it a tower, an attempt to glorify God? No. Was it a, to call people, look upward, look to God? No. No, the Babel architect said, come, let us build a tower that will reach the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. The bricks were made of inflated egos and the mortar was made of pride, sweat and blood, not to bring glory to God, but to themselves. There's a story of a little girl and her father who decided one day to go up to the Empire State Building, and as they went up and up and up onto the 60th floor, you know, the the height began to affect her ears and her stomach, and she started getting all afraid, and so she clung on to her dad's hand and said, Daddy, does God know we're coming? Like this naive girl, right? The ancient Near East, they believed that God lived up in the sky, and so in building this tower, The people were trying to bridge the gap between themselves and God. They were trying to meet God in their terms. And I love how Tim Keller summarizes this whole story by writing this. It's a great quote. The quintessential city of rebellion is seen at Babel. Here we see most clearly how sin distorts and abuses the original functions and dynamics of the city. That Babel's architectural focus, the first skyscraper, is really a temple to the glory of human power and independence. The goal of the city of rebellion is to make a name for ourselves. That means, in essence, to display human independence from God and to say that, God, I do not need you. I am my own master. 
that this hubris was not only seen here at Babel, but also in the nation of Babylon during Isaiah's time. So, uh, next slide. Here's a map. So, uh, if you know, this is the uh, Middle East kind of area, and there is Babylon. And when Isaiah wrote this, actually, Babylon was just a small little city-state along the banks of the Euphrates in what is now modern-day Iraq. So, Babylon here. And what this is so crazy amazing, that Isaiah writes this, like he writes about the demise of Judah, but he actually also writes about the demise of Babylon 200 years before it happens. I mean, that's how cool it is. Okay, anyways. So Babylon decides in the 5th century under King Nebuchadnezzar to kind of uh, show its aggression. So they began to come up. They took over their father empire, Assyria, and the city of Nineveh, and they continued to head east. And the only thing they didn't own was right here, Judah and Jerusalem. So eventually Babylon swept down. They took over Judah. Isaiah was right. The nation had fused to Listen, they refused to repent. They still followed their idols. And God, in His providence, used Babylon to judge His own people. And with that, as you can see from the map, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over a vast empire. Babylon became a place of wealth and power. With the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, with this amazing gate of Ishtar, which you had to walk through. There are even stories of the city gates where walls were being so large and big that you could race chariots and have horse races around them. And of course, the granddaddy act of hubris of them all, where Nebuchadnezzar decided, is recorded in Daniel 3, to build this huge golden nine-foot statue of himself. And not only that, he actually made a decree that every single person in his kingdom had to bow down to this idol, his statue. You talk about ego, maniac. Babylon has not changed. Still building, still as Keller called, the quintessential city of rebellion. Still thumbing his nose at God, still trying to be independent of God. And how does God respond to this pride and rebellion? God musters an army. He's able to call any army he wants to do whatever he wants. And as we read in chapter 13 in the beginning, it opens up in this beautiful poetic language of God causing an army, raising an army to demolish Babylon. And of course, it comes into effect 200 years later as recorded in Daniel in chapter 5. When if you know the story, King Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who at the party was suddenly interrupted by a giant hand that appeared of nowhere and began to write on the wall the following words, your days are numbered. The writing is on the wall. And it was on that very night that Darius of Persia came, called by God in his providence to conquer Babylon. Isaiah calls the fall of Babylon the day of the Lord. And this is what he writes following on in chapter 13. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless for Babylon." The jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God. On the day of the Lord, God will judge, and Babylon will cease to exist. So what is this day of the Lord? 
Well, the day of the Lord is actually a common phrase found throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, and it's not an actual 24-hour period. It's not a day, but it's a period of time when God takes action. But here's the question. When does God not take action? And so the day of the Lord is not just a specific time in which God puts judgment on the Babylonian Babylon of the 5th century, but judgment on all the Babylons in history. Let me say that again. The day of the Lord is when God judges and acts on all the Babylons in history. And we see this in our passage. In verse 10, Isaiah writes about the stars of heaven and on the constellations. Verse 11, there is mention of judgment on the whole world, that this is more than just judgment on Babylon. This is on judgment on what Babylon symbolizes, the quintessential city of rebellion, of pride, and hubris. I mean, if you think about it, the fall of Babylon in the 5th century did not mean the end of Babylonialism. I made up that word, by the way. It's fancy. No, it's not the end of Babylonialism. Babylonialism is alive and well. Just replace Babylon with any city, with Vancouver or Richmond, or replace it with any institution, the tapestry, with you and I. No, Babylonialism is alive and well, because don't we all humans constantly struggle with this temptation to make a name for ourselves? It started way back in Adam and Eve, that they're having a grand old time at the Garden of Eden, right? And yet they were tempted by Satan under the guise of a snake to eat the fruit from the tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan slithers up to Eve and says, come on. Come on, you can eat this fruit. Go ahead. God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you eat it, you will know what He knows, and so you will become like God. Well, the temptation to become like God is too much for Adam, too much for Eve. They both eat the apple. The temptation to become like God is too powerful to resist. They wanted to become like God. The great Christian writer J.K. Chesterton once wrote that if he only had one sermon to write, like one sermon to ever preach, it would be a sermon against the evils of pride. This is what he writes. The more I see of existence, the more I am convinced of the reality of the old religious thesis that all evil began with some attempt at superiority, and that it all began at the moment when the very skies were cracked across like a mirror because there was a sneer in heaven. For Chester then, pride, not money, Pride is the root of all evil, for it was the first sin ever committed, a sin that actually goes further back than Adam and Eve, back to this sneer from heaven. And it is Isaiah who in the next chapter, actually chapter 14, which provides the most descriptive um, description of this incident according to most theologians. Isaiah 14 writes like this, "'How have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn?' You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, the Latin word derived from the word morning star is where we get the name Lucifer. 
Lucifer was a high-ranking angel who, according to Ezekiel, was full of wisdom and beauty. However, as with other angels as well, along with us humans, he was given free will. And maybe it was because of his beauty, but he became arrogant and conceited that Lucifer was not content to be near God. He needed to be above God. And in our chapter, he utters five I will statements. He begins with, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne. I will be enth- sit enthroned on the mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And lastly, I will make myself like the most high. And because of his pride, because he wanted to be above God, Lucifer rebelled. And because of that, God would have no part of that. And as a result, Lucifer was expelled from heaven. What's that proverb again? Yeah, for pride comes before the fall. The story of Lucifer or Satan leads us wonder how a creature of such prominence within God's own court could defect and become the evil one. But the power of the story lies in its grave implications. As theologian Elaine Pagels insightfully notes, Satan is no alien enemy. No, he, on the contrary, is the intimate enemy because it points to the heart of evil within all of us, this desire to be our own God. And pride is something that you and I have seen in our lives, haven't we? We've seen it in the lives of others. We've seen the person who brags about everything and anything. We've seen athletes who call themselves the greatest. We've seen the scholars who find every opportunity to show how smart they are. We've seen grandparents endlessly boasting about their grandchildren. And this, for me, is the most humorous because of this false honesty that happens, right? Like you've seen that happen, especially in the Asian context. Oh, my poor grandson. He didn't make it to Harvard. Oh. But he made it to Stanford. Oh. You know, like it's just this false humility. But more than anything else, we've seen this, I think, most painfully when we've seen Christian so-called saints who judge and who look down on those that are not like us. I think we come to know pride the best when we start looking within ourselves. Friends, what about you and I? Where does pride fit in our lives? How does pride swell in your hearts? What tower are you building in your life? What are you desperately building and working towards, and what are the bricks of that tower being made of? There's one last mention of Babylon in the Bible. Anyone knows where it's from? Book of Revelation, right. So we're going to do it all today. We're doing Genesis to Revelation. In chapter 17 of Revelation, Babylon is pictured as a woman, and this is a metaphor, a description. This woman dressed in scarlet and purple, decked out in glittering gold, pearls, and jewels, sitting on a seven-head and ten-horned beast. It's a disturbing picture. It's, It's a yucky picture. It's a picture of evil. But in the opening of chapter 18, it gives us the fate of this woman. It reads, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had a great authority on earth, was illuminated by his splendor, and with a mouthy voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, and she has been a dwelling for demons and a haunt for any impure spirit. That Babylon has fallen once and for all. And immediately after the fall of Babylon, this is what is written in the next chapter. Chapter 19, this is how it begins. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, Babylon, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. That chapter 19 begins with this praise and exaltation. The heading is the threefold hallelujah over Babylon's fall, but if you actually read the chapter, hallelujah shows up four times. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Why? Because God is seated on His throne and worthy to be praised, but also because, as we just read, Babylon has finally fallen. Babylon, which again gets its name from Babel, symbolizing our desire to make a name for ourselves. Babylon that seduces us with the allure of prosperity, self-dependence, and hubris. Babylon and everything it represents, pride, sin, arrogance. Babylon has fallen. And so, of course, what is our response? Hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong to God in the highest. But how? How does Babylon, Babylonialism end? And who wins for us this victory? And by now, you know the answer. It's Jesus. In the book of Revelation, pointing to what Isaiah wrote, and we'll get this in a few months when we get to this mysterious suffering servant, but we get the picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who dies and was slain in, for, in order for us to live. In Isaiah, we get this picture of the shoot and root of Jesse, who grows up small and tender, out from a dead stump, life that comes from death, that in order for life to happen, something or someone has to die. Are you with me so far? Jesus shows us a different kind of glory, a different kind of victory, that Jesus who does and is the absolute very opposite of Babel, Babylon, Lucifer, and what they do. Because Jesus, not out of pride, not out of arrogance, who being the very nature God, made himself nothing, taking the form and the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. It's the cross which shows us the depth of our rebellion, our sin, and our pride. And yet it is the cross which shows us the depth of God's mercy and His love for us. And in that, we can exclaim, hallelujah, 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 salvation and glory and honor be to the Lord indeed. And I don't know about you, but this victory over Babylon is something I desperately need. Jesus is the day of the Lord personified. Jesus is God in action. And as much as we fear the day of the Lord, I fear the day of the Lord. I fear judgment. I fear God's wrath. But if you think about it, it's actually good news. Because isn't it good news that someone knows us so well, who knows all about our pride, who knows all about our darkness, who knows all about the sin in our lives, what we've done and what we will do, and yet who still intimately loves us so much. So much so that He will take away, He will chip away any dark, black, sinful stump in our lives. So much so that He would rather die than to live eternity without us. That He would rather die than to have that in our lives. But friends, will we let Him? Will we let Jesus into our life? And will we let him reign victorious over those parts of our lives? 
I think today, as in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, call us over and over and over again to respond with repentance. So I'd like to end today with a prayer, a prayer of confession. So will you join with me in prayer? Let us pray. Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave and being found in appearance as a person, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That, Father God, your Son Jesus showed us what it means to be truly human, of what we are called and capable of what we were created to be, to be people of humility, of sacrifice, of grace, of generosity, of compassion, and of love. And yet, Father God, we realize how fallen we are. We have not become the disciples of your Son, Jesus, that you desire us to be. And so, God, we confess our pride. God, we confess our selfishness. We confess our self-importance, our self-dependence, our self-sufficiency. We confess our idolatry and the idolatry of self. So hear us, God, now as we pray our prayers of repentance. And yet pride doesn't get the last word. Sin doesn't get the last word. Lucifer does not get the last word. No, the last word is Jesus. Jesus, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. So with our hands open, we pray that you would give us clean hands, that we would receive your forgiveness with clean hands we go love others to serve you and that we can also proclaim that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we confess, indeed, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, now and forevermore.